Hey folks, thank you as always for joining me. You know, there's a lot of reasons I love doing this show, but one of the biggest is unearthing that rare gem, that where have you been all my life forgotten 80s classic. And I think we got one. I think this is such a gem. I'm going to talk about this and 10 other additional new releases from September of 1983 on the bonus show happening exclusively at my Patreon. If you're a member, see you there. If not, get a seven-day free trial and join me for the best of the rest of September 1983 when you're done listening to this at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from a black wall, black carpeted, black Iggy dog laying beside me podcast bunker and rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, back once again. It is, I will remind you, my solemn vow that at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, in this, the year of our Lord, 2024, we're going to be talking about music from the exact same month in 1984, and as I've made clear, the only way we're going to get there is if I keep pumping these out, which is good news for me, because I hope you enjoy uh, hearing about the noteworthy and less noteworthy new music of, uh, in this case, the early in 1983, the early 80s, as much as I enjoy researching it and talking to you about it. So I, I anticipate these shows are going to keep coming every two weeks or so until we're caught up and then we'll figure out the plan from there. So here we are today talking about September of 1983, which saw the end of an era for namely the existence of the band um, for The Clash. The Clash played a gigantic concert. I forget the circumstances, but it was a huge stadium. It was, I think, 140,000 people. And that was the the last show that they played before their drummer quit because of uh, his ongoing heroin issues. And it was also the last show that they played before uh, the two remaining founding members kicked out uh, Mick Jones, who would go on to form Big Audio Dynamite and find success there, transitioned very neatly into the 80s, actually. Um, kind of gave him new life, being able to embrace some... Uh, some uh, some 80s elements that probably would not have jibed with the rest of the members of The Clash, especially Joe Strummer. Um, the parting must have been amicable enough because Strummer and Jones did occasionally appear on each other's solo projects in the, the, the following couple years. <clears throat> However, The Clash never ultimately reformed, so it also the parting couldn't have been that amicable either. Uh, the other noteworthy piece of of music news outside of just music ties uh, directly into the music that we're going to be talking about this time around. We're going to be talking about a lot of heavy metal. This is a big month for um, some, some old titans falling, some new titans rising, and one band mostly successfully making the transition from, uh, from, from the old world into the new, namely Kiss. On September 18th of 1983, um, all four members of Kiss. I wonder, actually, 
that would probably include Ace Freely. At this point in time, Ace Freely is sort of a member of KISS in name only. He's he's not really able to perform. I don't think he really cares to perform. The band certainly does not care to perform with him anymore, but there's all sorts of contractual legal stuff. Functionally, the guitar player of KISS at this moment in time, and it was, a, I think, probably a critical thing for them to get um, uh, a shot of in the arm of creativity was the guitar player Vinnie Vincent, who would later go on to form the somewhat successful Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Vinnie Vincent is the guy playing on the records, um, uh, uh, writing, uh, helping to co-write a lot of the songs, but I would imagine it was, I think they, they kept up the charade that Ace Frehley was still in the band for about a year when Vinny was actually doing the work behind the scenes before they officially unveiled him as a member of the band. But the four members of KISS went on MTV and sat down with, don't quote me on this, but I want to say um, uh, uh, one of the original DJs, probably Adam Curry. Remember Adam Curry? He was kind of the de facto rock dude. He was the only guy that had long hair and a leather jacket, so he was the rockinest dude in the VJ stable. So they went on MTV without the makeup, which was, it was probably a great thing for Kiss that they had that ace card up their sleeve, because for them it was, you know, I, I think they would be the first to admit, even their fans would be the first to admit, it's always been as much about the sizzle as it is about this, the the steak. And they always had the, the 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 visual thing and the makeup and the mystery of who are these guys really and what do they really look like. And they, they played on that for years. And then as their initial um, 70s run started to run its course, they tried to find other things to keep people interested. Remember, we've talked about a lot of these uh, career moves that they made at the turn of the decade here on this show. They tried going kind of prog rock. They made a concept album that was supposed to be accompanied by a movie. I'm speaking of The Elder, but the movie never came out, and uh, so the album didn't come out either. And they're, they're, they're kind of flailing at this point, although it's a little overly simple to say that Kiss had reached rock bottom. Actually, the album that directly preceded this was Creatures of the Night, where they're still wearing the makeup, and it had the song I Love It Loud. I'm not even a Kiss fan, and that's one of the Kiss songs that I personally really like. So it kind of was still working, but the band uh, savvily saw, if that is a word, saw the writing on the wall and decided this is the thing. We can finally, we can take off the makeup, we can put the shtick behind us, we can get everybody in the world really, really interested in KISS one more time. And then we just got to deliver an album that people give a shit about or else it really will truly be over. Um, so, so they make their historic appearance on MTV on September 18th of 1983. And the world finds out that the only thing scarier looking than Gene Simmons and makeup is Gene Simmons and no makeup. And they release a single that is, uh, I'm a big hair metal guy. I don't consider it uh, a top tier hair, hair metal song, but it did the job and it was successful enough for Kiss and it, and it allowed Kiss to transition into, now there's all these bands that are, that grew up worshiping Kiss that are finding success themselves and Kiss imitates the imitators and keeps themselves going into the 90s when they put the makeup back on. And as we all know, Kiss Kiss is still a going concern to this day. And they recently did their first, uh, their last human concert, their first hologram concert. So Kiss will outlive us all. And probably as close as they got to uh, to bottoming out and disappearing was right here in 83. But they, they kept the dream alive with this signature song right here.
flick it up, you see, because Gene Simmons really, really amazingly long tongue. And if you ask him, he'll flick it for you. He probably did a couple times in the music video. I haven't gone back to check, but I'm willing to bet. So Kiss successfully, they, they get on the, uh, they, they get into the escape pod and they, they make it into the, the hair metal era. But uh, here in September of 83, we see a couple of bands who were, they were shoulder to shoulder with in the seventies, not uh, not so successfully making the transition, failing to make the transition. Um, the first of which is Black Sabbath. So Black Sabbath had already pulled off the amazing trick of replacing the seemingly irreplaceable Ozzy Osbourne. I mean, it's just crazy when you really think through it. They're like, this guy's amazing. We wouldn't be here without him. But he is so trashed. He is so unreliable. Um, he's probably going to die soon. And so we may, we may as well be proactive here. And Ozzy would have been the first person to tell you he thought he was done. He was as shocked as anybody that he went off and he had this enormously successful solo career. But Black Sabbath, not to be, I mean, yeah, to be outdone. They still, they kept it going. They didn't go find a, you know, they, they, they were still successful and they didn't do it with an Aussie imitator. They moved in a different direction with Ronnie James Dio and they had a whole other run that was so good that, that the Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath was able to successfully reunite and make new albums years later. But lightning was not to strike three times for Black Sabbath. Here in uh, in 83, Geezer Butler jumps ship. And, uh, you know, Dio's off doing his own solo thing to great success. Geezer Butler, I, he joined Ozzy's band. I don't know if it was on a full-time basis, but he was with Ozzy seemingly, to me, if you look at the old videos, pretty consistently throughout the 80s run. Drummer Bill Ward is done with the band, I think, after this album. And at that point, Black Sabbath, frankly, got kind of sad. I remember as a kid, you know, the 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 magazines, they still reported on the new Black Sabbath stuff. They felt compelled to. They probably wanted to. Probably when they said, hey, who wants to go interview Tony Iommi about the new Black Sabbath album that's not going to do anything? And we all know it. Every hand in the room went up because all those journalists had grown up worshiping Black Sabbath. That was the band that got them, you know, one of the bands that got them into, into them into metal in the first place. But um, Tony Iommi never found uh, a third lead singer who would work with the band nearly as well as the prior two had. But here in 83, he, uh, under the name Black Sabbath, teamed up with Ian Gillian, who is best known for singing with Deep Purple, and they made the Black Sabbath album Born Again, uh, Born Again, which appropriately enough features uh, the single, single Trashed. Man, time is cruel. One day you show up and you're the hot new kid in town with the fresh new sound. And then, uh, well, if you, if, you, if you don't really change things up for 12 to 15 years, sooner or later, um, that once fresh sound is bound to uh, sound a little stale to the kids. Now, think about it. two years Two years before this, Ozzy had trans- transitioned out of the Black Sabbath stuff and released Crazy Train here in 83 
Tony Iommi very much sticking to the the tried and true Sabbath playbook, very much uh, to his band's uh, detriment. Production wise, I actually feel like that kind of had a vibe, like uh, kind of Queens of the Stone Agey, but um, easy to see how that did not get a fresh new batch of kids excited about Black Sabbath. Alice Cooper in September of 1983 found himself very much in the same situation. This uh, is the point at which Alice Cooper would uh, conclude what is ignominiously known as his uh, his trio of blackout albums very self-explanatory alice cooper has or claims to have no memory of making three consecutive albums now he was also due for a pretty massive comeback later in the decade but um first things first he had to go to rehab and get really really into golf this was um this was the end i mean if you thought the first two blackout albums sounded like a guy who was totally blacked out you could uh, have um, you could only have very modest hopes for the third in the trilogy and uh, this is what we got in september 83 alice cooper and a track called i love america off the album dada It's our 4th of July sale here at Cooper's Carnival of Clean Classic Cars at the corner of Collins and Collins. I got a lot full of the finest one of the cars money can buy at the prices even you can afford. So come on down and sail up to me and Granny and bring the kids to meet my snake. I say bye, Granny says bye, and the snake says, I love General Patton in World War II. A pocket fisherman in my crazy glue. I love the team I too. If you have a kid who's like, I don't know why your kid would ever do this, but if they're like ever come to you and go, Hey dad, I'm really thinking about getting into uppers, specifically speed. You could sit them down and, and have a talk or you could give them some pamphlets or you could just play them that song by Alice Cooper. And I think that, uh, that, that track as effectively as any other anti-drug, uh, propaganda will clearly demonstrate speed kills. That is, that made me uncomfortable to listen to, frankly. Okay, and then we got September of '83. Joe Perry is still uh, is still on uh, the 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 Toxic Twins of Aerosmith. Still, um, uh, apart from one another, still trying to prove to the world and to themselves, I never needed that other guy. And here's the music that will prove it. Of course, uh, I think within about a year. Aerosmith will have reunited and they'll have put out um, the, a, a decently successful album that sets the stage for the really, really successful comeback stuff of the 80s and the maybe even bigger stuff from the 90s. I and mean, they really, they, I think they were bigger the second time around and, and for a longer amount of time than they were the first time. But here in September of 1983, Alice Cooper has concluded his Blackout trilogy and Joe Perry, I believe, concludes the trilogy of albums that he made with his uh, somewhat successful, somewhat well-received, still somewhat well-regarded sideband, the innovatively titled Joe Perry Project. Love the rouge on Joe Perry on the cover of this album.
Joe Perry's a really, really good lead guitar player. Uh, really, truly one of the greats. There is no Slash without Joe Perry, but uh, it's a shame there was no social media in those days. What I wouldn't have given for a live reaction video of, uh, I mean, Jesus, both sides. Um, Steven Tyler reacting to hearing that track right there, but then Joe Perry uh, reacting to the stuff that Aerosmith was up to as well. So those are the Titans falling, but um, probably more interestingly to everybody here, the bands on the rise. The hair metal revolution is, you know, it's been knocking on the door for forever. And these bands, uh, the bands who were going to be dominating Headbangers Ball and even crossing over to more mainstream MTV and even radio airplay in the second half of the decade, they've been putting out their little debut albums, debut EPs, um, mostly to, to little to no notice. But here is where, uh, you know, I mean, Quiet Riot's already happened, but Quiet Riot kind of came and went. Quiet Riot uh, went, walked that Motley Crue could run. This is the time for the crew. They'd released the album Too Fast for Love first on their own um, independent label, and then it got picked up and re-released by Elektra, and they went out and did a couple of tour dates with Ozzy, and, you know, they'd gotten the the To Kiss the Ring of the, the Prince of Darkness but here in, I think, uh, Nikki six always knew what he wanted. It's kind of very similar to like a Madonna thing. Always knew that he wanted to be this gigantic star and always had like a vague vision of, of what that might be. But the, the first album was really just the stepping stone to get him into the arena of the true golden gods and talking to the record label people and meeting the MTV people and going, okay, okay. Now that I have my foot in the door, what is it actually going to take for my band to be flipping huge? And um, in the case of Motley Crue, depending on where you uh, stand on the band, I say this is uh, I was this is the band that got me effectively really into music. Now, when I listen back to it, I'm not exactly sure, you know, that that was the the coolest decision I could have made. But uh, but, you know, I'm not the only kid. Millions, millions of kids felt the same way about this stuff. What? Nikki Six had in 1983 was um, a couple of really solid riffs and uh, a, a decent look for the band, and um, and and the outrage bait of Satanism. They just the band leaned into it really, really hard. I have a very hard time believing that anybody in the band ever said one sincere prayer in uh, a, or made one offering to Satan. But they had a feeling that uh, that that the, the the best way to uh, to get a name for themselves was to put a big um, a bullseye on their back, and the best way to put a big bullseye on their back was to put a big pentagram on the cover of their album, which is what they did with their uh, their breakthrough multi platinum 1983 album, Shout at the Devil. He's a tear in your eye, 
In that same month, September of 1983, Dawkins released their debut album. Dawkins would go on to be one of the biggest bands of the, uh, at least the early part of the hair metal movement. Didn't exactly come together on this first album. The story is uh, is kind of convoluted. Don Dawkins gets a record deal in like Germany, I think, and then he goes off there and he recruits a couple guys from a different band to come with him. Most importantly, guitar player George Lynch and the two. Uh, some bands of the story is they stopped getting along. Dawkins, I think the story is these guys never liked each other in the slightest, but, um, they, sometimes success can be a curse. They go off to, Hey, do you, Hey, we're two nobodies who are struggling to make rent. Somebody's going to fly us to another country and put us in a studio and give us some money and put out a record. And they, they, they put it out. And initially it's put out under the name, uh, Don Dawkins and George Lynch and the rest of the guys are able to uh, negotiate that down to simply Dawkins. They were not happy about, you know, in, in the, in the vein of, uh, of Van Halen having, um, a band that, uh, is named after one member of the band, which and all that that implies that that guy's the boss of the band. I forget what name they wanted to call it, but uh, since 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 Don set the bidding for the name of the band at just flat out calling it Don Dokken, they had to settle for slicing off his uh, his his first name. But nobody was happy with that. But what are you going to do when you make a record and it's a big hit? What, are you going to walk away from that? They did eventually, but they made a couple albums in the meantime. So the first, the second album was going to be a gigantic, gigantic hit. And it's a big part of uh, successfully melding metal with melody, which, you know, opens the door for all of the, the true hair farmers and, and their sappy ballads in the, the late 80s. But here in September of 1983, they put out an album that's actually fairly unsuccessful at the time. But it does feature one of the signature docking tunes. So let's do a little rocking with docking right now. Now, with that out of the way, I should let you know I have absolutely, totally buried the lead for this month's episode. Uh, without a doubt, the most successful and whatever you think of it, significant album that came out in September of 1983 was Sports, the signature album from Huey Lewis and the News. I think this album, in in, in a certain way, you'd be hard pressed to pick. Um, an album that better embodies all that the 80s were for better and for worse. You can't you, you can't hate Huey Lewis, the guy. And I don't know the news personally, but I think the same thing goes across the board for that entire operation. They're just likable, good natured dudes. Um, they were not cool in the slightest. They weren't even trying to be cool. And what they were doing, I think, was just it was very much a, an eye of the beholder sort of thing. If you were uh, the kind of person who wanted music to mean something, say something, be innovative, have some cutting edge artistic merit, you were going to hate this band. If you were the kind of person who just wanted like a good song that sounded good that you could sing along to, 
this band was everywhere you want to be. Now, there's a lot more of that second camp than there are of the first camp, and that's the reason why this album ultimately sold uh, 7 million copies. A couple of fun facts. I, I, like many people, I've always wondered why the album is just called Sports. According to Huey Lewis, it was just, I, if I understand him correctly, it's got the whole band on the cover hanging out in like a, a bar with a pool table in the foreground. And I, I think he was saying it was a play on words that they're, the whole band is a bunch of good sports. So there's a picture of them like, hey, we're sports. So I think many other people just assumed it was this totally like the, the anti-Huey crowd, which was small but vocal, was like, man, are you? can you pander more to the mainstream? It's like calling your album beer or chips or <laughs> something like that. But Huey says it was a, it was a play on words. Uh, one of the big singles, there's four huge singles off of this, is called... Um, the Heart of Rock and Roll, and a fun story about that, if I understand it correctly, is um, it's it's very straightforward, really. They were playing in Cleveland, and I think they were playing at some cool amphitheater, and somebody pointed out the history of it. And, you know, the, the first rock radio got, uh, got, the first rock songs got played on the radio in Cleveland. There's a reason why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is there. So I think the working title was The Heart of Rock and Roll is in Cleveland. <laughs> And uh, cooler, wiser heads prevailed, and they made it. The heart of rock and roll is still beating, but I like that story. I think we can all <laughs> agree that they, they made the right move there. Um, this album took on a, a second life of its own because of first the novel and then the hugely successful movie American Psycho. As you may well know, um, Huey Lewis and the News of Sports was one of the favorite albums of the protagonist, if he may be so-called, Patrick Bateman. I remember reading the book way back when, and like I got it. I got the this this you know super weird uh, uh, psychopathic Manhattan yuppie guy talking, you know, lauding music like Huey Lewis and Genesis that it was supposed to be like where people who get it are supposed to know that this is part of the reason like why he's insane to actually be giving a positive critical appraisal of Huey Lewis in Genesis, but I can't be the only person who read American Psycho, and I'm like, okay, killing people indiscriminately, very bad. But I actually pretty much agree with the dude's opinion on music. I could have picked, you know, there's four massive singles off of this. I could have picked anyone to sample, but I think the most prototypical of its day song from um, from sports is this one right here. Huey Lewis and the News were like a legitimate good band. <clears throat> they remain one. I believe their touring days are officially over now, unfortunately, um, until the end. But it was a sign of the times. The band tried recording this song with the straightforward drums, bass, guitar, keys thing, and it just wasn't quite happening. Huey Lewis was like, we. the name of the game in the 80s was singles, and they'd had a taste of it, but they're like, the way we stay in the game, the way we win the game is not by making solid, listenable albums and having a great live show. It is singles. And so they played around with, you know, the, the, these most 80s of implements, drum machines and bass sequencers. And uh, the drummer and the bass player were not super pumped about it. But in the end, um, Huey and the rest of the band overruled them. And they went with this more 80s out, 80s out take on their sound. Um, and uh, this prototypical 80s classic single. I want a new drum.
Elsewhere in the pop sphere in September of 1983, UB40 had their breakthrough until this point. This is their fourth studio album. They had been largely, if not entirely, a band that performed originals. Um, they had uh, always harbored intention to do covers, and then uh, I think it just the, the album tour, album tour cycle caught up with them. It was time to deliver a record or close to it, and they just didn't have enough songs. And they're like, hey, we've always sort of had that idea. Let's go back to our roots as a reggae band. And they, they, um, they restricted themselves to songs that had originally been recorded between 1969 and 1972. And they worked the list down and worked the list down until they had 10 or 11 songs that they were all really excited to record. And uh, the result, at least one of those covers, was a gigantic smash. And it just, it became the blueprint, I guess, according to, to the extent that there are hardcore UB40 fans out there, I apologize if you happen to be one of them. This is the transition from their early, real, credible era into their era as uh, more accessible hit makers. I know we talked about this on a show with McGrath at at, at one point. Um, the the one hit covers show the bands who've only had one hit, and it wasn't even a song that they wrote. And I think UB40 managed to make that song, make that show, despite the fact that they had like four or five hits, because every they had a, a string of hits, and every single one was a cover. I think them and the Fugees, weirdly, are are the two, depending on how, how you classify a song that repurposes an old hook, but then incorporates original uh, hip hop verses. Anyway. UB40 were pretty much here to stay. They had hits to the late 80s, maybe even the early 90s. But it begins uh, here in September of 1983 with perhaps the biggest and perhaps the greatest of them all. I feel bad now for casting aspersions on UB40. I haven't heard that song in a while. It's a little bit better than I remember. Okay, okay. Apologies to, I have no doubt there's a, that UB40 fans are, are legion among listeners of this show. You guys are right. I'm, I was wrong. UB40 are awesome. The Romantics are a weird band, or at least their presence in uh, mainstream culture and in mainstream memory is really unusual. I can't think of another band like the Romantics, where they had two very, very big hit songs that sounded next to nothing like each other. Now, their their big hit song is, you know, the the iconic What I Like About You. That song is like the Louie Louie of the early 80s. Even if you, I mean, does anybody strongly hate? The only reason to hate What I Like About You is just because it's so played out, but it was just fun and it was easy and it was effervescent and it was like... Um, Blitzkrieg bop, except successful, right? Uh, and the song has just never really gone away from the... It's just like, it's so on-the-nose basic rock that it's, it was essentially timeless from the time that it showed up. But uh, I don't know what the drummer's name is in the Romantics, but the drummer sang on that. Remember in the music video? It was like the, the rare um, uh, the, uh, example of, of a drummer singing, um, particularly in a, in a pop format. 
And then I think the band had a bit of a dry spell before they had their second and final big hit. This time around, it was the guitar player singing. So it's a totally, I mean, yeah, it's not not worlds different, but you'd never guess it was the same band. It's much more slick, much more synth, much more, you know, what I like about you is essentially a garage rock song. This is very much a slick 80s pop rock production off the album, The Romantics in Heat. There's just certain songs that, uh, if you, especially if you're around in the '80s, listening to them, it 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 feels the same as watching an '80s movie. And I see that that song did make it onto the extended soundtrack for uh, Stranger Things, which is just a great big glob of '80s nostalgia, as you probably know. And it makes perfect sense that it would have been there. It fits right in. One more uh, relatively minor pop hit, but a song that is close to my heart that came out in September of 1983. The Motels are a little pop rock band. Um, I guess the, the 80s in LA produced three, am I forgetting anybody? Three female fronted pop rock acts. The Bangles were massively successful. The Go-Go's were massively successful. The Motels less so, but they had their moments. And uh, I think the songs are very, very charming and they hold up very, very well. Only the Lonely was the big hit song. That was a top 10 song off the preceding album. But uh, the, the the single, on this would be the last single from the Motels. This one uh, it's pretty much just as good if you ask me. Well, folks, we have almost come to the end of the rainbow here on the big show. I there there are twenty two new music releases that I feel are worthy of revisiting and discussing from September of nineteen eighty three, and this time around, to me, they split perfectly in half. There's eleven that I think the casual music fan would be uh, would be familiar with and would give a crap about, but for the real psychos, there's the other. 11. Uh, there's the song that I played in um, the pre-roll of this show. I'm very excited about this artist. I've never heard of John Fox before. Is it Fox with two X's? Damn right it is. It was 1983, goddammit. And um, it's just a ton of really big name artists. They were just doing stuff that wasn't very successful. The Commodores in September of 1983 attempted to prove to the world as Lionel Richie embarked on, on his uh, stratospheric rise as a solo artist. The Commodores released an album to be like, we don't need Lionel Richie, and here's the album that proves it. And then they released the album that proved just how desperately they really did need Lionel Richie. So join me over there, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Get a seven-day free trial, and you can listen to that and several thousand other shows as well. But before I go, I have I said that I buried the lead with Huey Lewis and the news. To people with actual good taste in music, I have buried the lead until 
now, in September of 1983, Tom Waits released what I have to imagine is his signature album. Tom Waits had been around for more than a minute doing the singer-songwriter thing, but Tom Waits, as most people know him, as I know him, where he's like really leaning into that incredibly raspy voice and really replacing like drums with uh, just whacking pieces of wood against pots and pans and stuff like that, that comes together with the landmark album, Swordfish Trombones. Now, I I, I, I have this album. I, I enjoy this album. Um, the, the critical appraisal for this is like totally off the charts. At the end of 1983, Swordfish Trombones was uh, ranked the second best album of the entire year by England's New Music Express. In 1989, Spin Magazine named this album the second greatest album of all time. Now, I say this as a fan. I think that's a little much, but it is a really, really good album, and I'm going to do something that I never do because I I just feel like I have to. I want to play two different songs off this album because um, the song, you know, the, the, the grunty Tom Waits, raspy monkey man thing is, is, is in full form and has never been on better display than in the opening track of the album, which is this one right here. I guess if I had to come up with a one-word adjective for Swordfish Trombones, um, it's hard to think of an album that is more evocative. That song right there, Underground, is about how it's in 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 the in in the kitchens of restaurants, in back alleys, delivery boys and and delivery people, and drug dealers and shady folks and. Uh, in the neighborhoods that you don't go to, in 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 in, in the doors that you don't open, in buildings, um, it, when you are asleep, there's the third shift of the world. There's a world going on underground. He not only literally says it with the lyrics, you you feel that late night, the 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 mystery, the magic, the fear, the drudgery of the things that happen uh, out of sight of of us normal bourgeoisie. Uh, but the song that I want to leave you with, it's one of the most beautiful songs that I've ever heard. I can't tell you how often I think of the lyric from this song, Friday's a funeral and Saturday's a bride. Underground evokes one slice of life. This song evokes if you're from a, a, a small town or if you're just from a neighborhood and, and who among us isn't. This is uh, life, day-to-day life as we know it, the the mundane details of day-to-day life in neighborhoods elevated to the sublime. It's it's a perfect song, and uh, I leave you with it, and I thank you folks, as always, for joining me. Saturday's a bride. He says, Got a pistol.